you to today's scripture from the book of Acts, chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Now in the first book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus did and taught from the beginning until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Now, while staying with them, he ordered them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait there for the promise of the Father. This, he said, is what you have heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? He replied, It is not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said this, as they were watching, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while he was going, and while they were gazing toward heaven, suddenly two men in white robes stood by them. They said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up toward heaven? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Well, good morning. We, uh, Brian, you're right, we're into this two-service thing, and everything's just all, all changed around on us. I know I, I just finished a one-week teaching, a one-week intensive at Abilene Christian University, and I'm still kind of catching my breath after being in class for 40 hours this past week. Uh, but it is good to be here, and uh, good to be with you as we launch into this fall time, this fall season with the anticipation of school and uh, Maybe sometime some change in the weather that would come with that. Uh, wouldn't that be nice, right? But we're in a nice place here, and we're worshiping the Lord together and among brothers and sisters in the Lord, among, a great, uh, among great friends and loved ones, and there's nothing better than what we're doing here today. Well, maybe you've had this same experience, this sense of wanting to know something, feeling a sense of anxiety, and wishing to, to get, get something figured out. Like you go to the doctor's office and you're waiting in the waiting room, kind of waiting and waiting because you did this exam or lab a week earlier and now you're trying to wait and you're waiting now to finally get the report. How did it turn out? What's the news? What lies ahead for me, doc? Or maybe you're playing a, uh, on an athletic team and you go to the coach and say, coach, is it this the quarter? Is this the chance for me to play? You're wanting to know, you want to know, or now students uh, getting ready for, for school, when, when will we get to work on fractions? Will that happen this afternoon? Like, no kid ever asked that question. 
Sorry, I guess I got off track. Uh, Or maybe it's a grad student asking similar questions about term papers and such. Or maybe it's at work and it's, hey boss, will I get that account or not? Uh, Or maybe it's just the question many of us are asking, hey, anybody, uh, what about the Cowboys this year? Will anything good come there? We want to know. We always are looking to know. We want to know because we're curious. We want to know because we're anxious. We're uneasy and uncertain. And if only we could know, then maybe that would help us settle down a little bit. We want the comfort, the assurance, the power that knowledge brings to us. We want it and desire it. And we're even willing to pay good money to figure it all out. I just was talking to a friend who paid lots of money to find where the trout were at in some remote location in Northern California. Uh, In fact, he had to sign a statement not telling me or anybody else where those fish were at. Uh, We want to know things. We want to know. I remember being a child uh, some years ago and my parents uh, telling me as I would find a box setting someplace near Christmas and I said, what's that? What's that? anxiety, interest, curiosity, eating at me. And I would ask questions. I'd say, well, can I wear it? And they'd say, well, if you wanted to. And I'd say, well, can you eat it? And they'd kind of roll their eyes as well, like, if you wanted to. And of course, all that did was just make my anxiety and, and my curiosity just grow and grow and grow. And here we have Jesus visiting with his disciples before he ascends into heaven. And they're saying, Lord, is this the time? Is this the moment? Are you going to finally act? Are we going to see the kingdom be restored to Israel? Is this the moment? And Jesus says, sorry, not going to tell you. It's not for you to know. Ah, that moment of frustration and dis-ease at not being able to know. I feel that, and perhaps you have felt it as well. It can happen to churches as well. When is it that that search committee is going to finally get up and going, right? Ah, we, we live with this kind of thing. Will I graduate or not? Will, they, will I be able to complete the program? And on and on and on it goes. We live with, as human beings, the reality of having to function and work and live and be Christian in the midst of not knowing. And I just wonder, I just wonder if this text might help us in some of our not knowing times. In fact, I'm wondering if somehow or another the not knowing is actually a part of our own development and maturity and and our growth as Christian disciples. I wonder that. Maybe you have wondered that too. I think perhaps that is the case, actually, in this, uh, this text. And what, what Jesus is doing and what's happening here is this all unfolds. As, as these disciples are left with the reality that Jesus has now uh, vanished into the heavens and they're left wandering, looking up in the sky. And I think perhaps the key to understanding what might be going on here is what is being actually described in this moment. We call it the ascension, the ascension. Now, it may not be as a familiar term to us as other terms as we think about the life story of Jesus. We know full well the story about the incarnation, right? God becoming flesh and dwelling among us, the baby Jesus and all of that. 
And we know and speak about the cross and how at the cross of Jesus Christ, as Jesus hung there on that cross, that our our sins were being decisively dealt with once and for all. Well, we know that story, and we get that, we think. And then there's the story about the resurrection, where Jesus comes out of the tomb on the third day, triumphant, life over death, victory over death, to die no more. And we like that story as well. But here's this fourth movement of the story that we sometimes don't talk about so much. It is the story that the one who became man and dwelt among us is now going to be with the Father in heaven. There is something about this ascension that is the completion of the whole story that we often neglect. And needfully, we need to hear it afresh and anew, perhaps today, in the midst of all of our waiting and wondering what is going on in our world. For you see, it is the ascension that completes the whole story. Uh, To get at this a little bit, uh, one of the things that one of the church fathers would say in a very simple sort of way, a fellow by the name of Athanasius, an old dead guy, uh, but he said it very simply. He said, uh, God became man so that man could become a god. Now, what he was saying was not some sort of heresy, like as if we were going to become God, but what he was saying was that God's intent was that by Jesus becoming fully human, those of us who are fully human can also live in divine relationship with God for eternity. Or another way to play this all out is that just because God God became man in Jesus Christ, that when Jesus Christ ascended and returned to the Father, doesn't mean that he gave up his humanness. And in fact, the discovery of all that is that in Jesus Christ ascending to set at the right hand of the throne of the Father is a reminder to us of what we all have been invited to, nothing less than the table and the fellowship of God eternal and almighty. Now that is pretty big news. And the place where it sometimes hits us is that we sometimes get stuck in some earlier part of the story and not get the other part of the story and what God is fully up to. You know, have you, have you ever heard it said that the church is sort of like a hospital? A hospital, a place for sick people. That, that the church is the place where God gathers up all the sick and the broken, and that as sick, broken people, we find uh, a, a place of welcome, a place of comfort. You know, that's very true. And that's what the incarnation reminds us of. And the fact that Jesus died on the cross for our sins remind us, reminds us that God addresses and deals with our sinfulness and our brokenness. But somehow or another, we can sometimes get stuck on that metaphor of church as hospital and forget that actually God didn't just save us from our sins with the power of the cross. He actually uh, is at work in the resurrection power of Jesus Christ, transforming us so that we, in the end of all times, can live eternally with God in the heavens. That is to say that the point of this whole story is taking us and not merely uh, putting a band-aid over our brokenness, but actually to transform and change us into something completely new and triumphant and wonderful. And that's why the ascension is so, so very important. 
the idea of the hospital is only a partial notion. It might be better to think of, of, of the church as more like a rehab unit, right? How many of you have ever gone in for surgery on, say, a knee or a hip or a shoulder or something, and you go through the surgery process on your knee, and you, uh, you, you get cut on, and then about six hours later, it seems, you're just coming out of the anesthesia, and some physical therapist comes thudding into your room and hauls you up out of the bed, and you're up walking on that knee before you can hardly, hardly even get the grogginess out of your head, right? You know this, right? Why? Because the goal of this whole thing about being in a hospital for surgery is not for you to lay around with a busted up knee for the rest of your life. It's for you to be able to be able to leave the hospital and engage in meaningful life again with a new knee and new skills and abilities that have been lost. The goal of what God is doing in the world is not merely to baby us along as a bunch of sick little sinners. The goal is that he wants to renew us and restore us and by the power of Jesus Christ transform us into something wonderful, powerful, and glorious for the sake of his purposes. Uh, That's what's going on in the story of Jesus and what we've been invited to. And that gives us sort of a new way to think about what it means to be people who are waiting upon God to do the work that God wants to do in our lives. You see, I think that we, <clears throat> I really think there are two kinds of waiting. And all too often, we kind of fall into the trap of one of those kinds of waiting. The kind of waiting that says, well, I'll just sit on the couch and fold my arms and wait till God comes knocking on my door. Or, but there's another kind of waiting. We see this, say, in the Gospel of Matthew. I think it's chapter 25. There's several stories there. Do you remember the story from Sunday school about the ten young women who are part of the big bridal party? There's going to be big doings. Ten women are selected to be a part of the bridal party, and five of them are called the wise young women. Other five are called what, church? Oh, come on. They're called what, church? The foolish Why? Because all ten were waiting, but five came prepared. It was an active kind of engagement that they were uh, doing as they waited upon the bridal party to all come together. Or the second story that I'm thinking of from that same block of material from the Gospel of Matthew is a story about a master who has three servants, and all three servants are going to have to wait for the master to return. And in that time of waiting, all three servants have got something given to them. One's got five talents, one's got two talents, and one has one talent. All three engage in waiting. Two of them engage in a a certain kind of waiting, a kind of, we might call it investment waiting, right? They engage in meaningful engagement so that upon the return of the master on his time and terms, they would be ready to give an account. The third one engaged in what I call major anxiety kind of waiting. Oh, what's he going to do when I get back? I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Oh, my goodness. And he buries his talent in the ground. Oh, it's going to be bad when he comes back. And you know what? It was. Because he did not wait well. Do you see the kind of waiting that we're talking about? 
If we are really a part of God's grand story, where the one who came and was made flesh and dwelled among us, uh, went to the cross, rose from the dead, is now ascended to the to the right hand of the throne of the Father, and is actively interceding on our behalf, seeking to bring about the transformation and renewal in our lives, active and involved in our lives today, not as someone who's been uh, uh, taken away from us. That's what we sometimes think about the ascension. But rather, is been lifted up or promoted or exalted to this powerful role of working in our lives in these days and moments, then suddenly the kind of waiting we get involved in is a very active, engaged, expectant, and prayerful waiting that we've been invited to participate in. That's what we're talking about, and that's what I'm inviting you to consider, to consider what it means for us to be persons who engage in what I'm calling a biblical expectant waiting. A waiting on God's promises and on God's timing and on God's agenda. It starts to reverse our anxieties and our worries about how God is working things out in my life or in my family's life or in our congregation's life. Instead, we engage in a deep sense of anticipation for what God is going to do and prepare ourselves for the possibilities of what God seeks to do in our lives. It means waiting like old Gideon from the Old Testament who found himself being reduced time and time again down to 300 uh, soldiers to place his trust not in himself but in God's work. It means waiting and living like Joseph in Potiphar's house and working away uh, steadily in in, uh, Pharaoh's prison. It means waiting and living like like Abraham who, uh, who leaves what is familiar and is willing to take risks and venture into something that is unknown, into the frontiers. It means living like Moses who spent his whole life in preparation to send his people into the land of promise a reality that he could only see from the far distance of Mount Nebo. It means waiting and living like Mary, who is informed by God that his spirit would come over her and she would conceive and bear a child. To wait, church, means to wait in prayer for God to send his spirit. It means waiting until I can get my... uh, uh, It means knowing that I need to work on getting my own life in order. For how can I expect God to work more fully in my own life if I'm not ordering my life according to this grand story that I spoke about a few moments ago of incarnation and cross and resurrection and ascension? You see, our work is really about expecting and looking for God to do his work in our lives. So here's my challenge for you this morning. Here's what I'm calling you to do. I'm asking every one of us, man, woman, boy, girl, the youngest of us to the young, uh, the oldest of us to the younger, youngest of us to do one single thing. I'm inviting you to invite God into your life, to receive him again. And I'm asking you to pray, starting with yourself. I'm not saying pray for the person who's sitting two rows up in front of you and to the left slightly who just yawned. I'm not talking about the person who sits two rows behind you that you had a little fuss with last six months ago. I'm not talking about the person who thinks differently you that's sitting on the other side of the church right now. 
I'm talking about praying for you, where you stand in before the Lord, that you invite him into your life, and that you allow for him to do the work, and that you respond to the work that you need to be doing in your life. That's what I'm inviting you to do. I'm inviting you to pray that God will send his spirit upon you and upon this church. I'm asking you to pray for others around you as well, but you start with yourself. And we, and we pray together for the, for the one who will come and be your new minister. We, we pray for all these things, but we start with the prayer that begins with, what is it, Lord, that I need to be doing so that I'm ready when you, come, uh, uh, come, when you arrive upon the scene? That's what we need to do. That's what we do. We live with a sense of, expect, of expectancy about impossibility, and we prepare ourselves for that and the things that we need to be doing and attending to so that we'll be ready when God shows up in our lives. And so, I guess, church, what I'm saying is, what kind of waiting will you do? Will you be a person who sort of just kind of hears all this stuff and then we just kind of seep right back into doing life as we ordinarily do it? Or are we a kind of person who, with renewed vigor, engage in uh, prayer and expectancy just like these early disciples did just beyond our text we find just a few verses later that these folks all gather together and devote themselves to fervent prayer uh, day after day waiting expectantly upon God's work in their lives and in their world what kind of waiting will you do I close with a parable from Tony Campolo and by the way, I may need a little bit of <clears throat> audience, uh, congregational participation here. Uh, I'm going to talk about ducks. Can I, is anybody here, can they quack? Yeah, okay, all right, you're ready, then here we go. There was a story told of a town where all the residents were ducks. Every Sunday, the ducks would waddle out of their houses and waddle down to Main Street and waddle into their church. They waddled into the worship center and they squatted down into their little proper pews. And then the worship team came waddling into its place. And the elders come waddling into their places. And the minister came waddling in and he opens up the duck Bible and he begins to read. Ducks, he says, God has given us wings. And all the ducks said, and with wings you can fly. And they... And with wings they mount up and you can soar like eagles. No walls can confine you. And no fences can hold you. For you have been given wings. God has given you wings and you can fly like birds. And all the ducks then closed out the sermon with a loud round of amens and quacks. And then they waddled out and waddled all the way home. Church, what kind of people will we be as we leave this place today? Jake, come and lead us in this song. Let's respond right where you're at or perhaps make your way to the front where elders will receive you. Let's stand and sing.